We are live from the Empire of Lies and just outside the Matrix in the oasis of truth and free speech in the Biden administration. I'm journalist Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. Rod, our producer, has put together a great show today, and I think it's going to be a unique show. We're going to do a deep dive into Israel and Zionism. First, Jeff Halper, joining us from Israel, talking about the recent death of the Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akbar, who was killed on the 12th, I believe, no, in fact, I believe it was the 11th. She was shot to death, and we'll be talking about that and the ongoing controversy about her death with Jeff Halper. Then, in the second hour, we're joined by Yaakov Shapiro, anti-Zionist rabbi, and we'll be talking about the wider issues of Zionism. That's today on The Backstory. So, quite a show, Rod. I think people are going to find it very interesting. What do you think? Yeah, no, definitely. You know, uh, you know. Unfortunately, this this woman uh, was killed over in the West Bank, and that's what's uh, a lot of people are talking about right now. Obviously, you know, Israel's a hot topic uh, usually year round. So, uh, with this with this killing of this uh, journalist, Palestinian journalist, it's uh, definitely a hot topic. And we'll also talk about some issues with Yakov, because Zionism, and a lot of people misunderstand Zionism. And I'll tell you, one of the first questions that we're going to have for Rabbi Shapiro is to define Zionism, because I find that a lot of people don't understand what Zionism is. When I've talked to people about this on Twitter or something like that, some people think is it. Zionism is you don't want Israel to be destroyed. Does it make sense, Rod? You know, you don't want Israel wiped off the map. Yeah, I've heard I've heard that argument that Zionism is, is the uh is the existence of Israel itself and so yeah, I have heard that argument. And that's true in some senses, but Zionism goes much deeper than that. And we'll talk to Yaakov about this. And uh but Zionism plays a major role in so many political issues, including obviously the Middle East, and I would argue is right at the center of the Russian-Ukraine conflict, because the chief argument that people have advanced against the idea that there's Nazis in Ukraine is what? It's that Zelensky's Jewish, therefore there can't be Nazis in Ukraine. And that's essentially a Zionist argument. One of the reasons that I think is important is what Zionism does, I think is one of the deeper issues. Zionism, I think, convinces a lot of people that Zionism is speaking for Jews. You know, you think it, it, it creates this illusion that all Jews are of one opinion on issues like Israel, or that if Zelensky says he's Jewish, even though he may not be a practicing Jew, 
I'll put it like this. You hear the same argument with another person who's involved in Ukraine, George Soros. How many times have you heard you can't criticize George Soros because it's anti-Semitic? Right, Rod, that comes up. Oh, it's all the time. And just to uh, double down on that, uh, here in Philadelphia, we have elections coming up and the uh, the media, the I guess the Republicans here, GOP in the state, have been uh, releasing information on these progressives and, you know, some of their uh, Marxist uh, ideologies that they want to implement. And the media here in Philadelphia has been, you know, like, oh, you know, look at look at the uh, Republicans pointing out uh, targeting these progressives. And these are people who are backed by George Soros, so they're protecting them. And, you know, so, yeah, it, it happens all the time. And it's the same thing. It's the same argument. In essence, a lot of it is this person's Jewish, and that's questionable, but therefore criticizing your views is anti-Semitic. And I don't agree, but is a common argument among Zionists. And Rabbi Shapiro calls Zionism a form of identity theft. It it transfers being Jewish to something you choose and accept as a religious choice. It makes it not a religion. It's a classic argument, you know, are Jews a race or a religion? Zionism says fundamentally both and says, but it leans on the ethnicity side that Judaism's an ethnicity because they often reject. And we'll talk with you, Rabbi Shapiro about this. This is not a minor belief. A rabbi recently died in Israel. He's 94 years old. And uh, he's a... 500,000 people attend his funeral. Is that fair, fair number of people attend a funeral, Rod? That's that's crazy. That's that's stadium, you know, super stadium. Not even, that's like, double, you know, I can't even imagine 500,000 people. And he was an ultra-Orthodox rabbi who was vehemently anti-Zionist. So this is not a small fringe movement, but... It is seems like it seems like a small fringe movement because it's not reported on. I talked to Yakov Shapiro before. When they do protests, his group does protests outside APAC, protesting the Israeli lobby. He said he told me that cameras literally turn away from him and his group. They don't want to get them on camera. They don't want people to know about the existence of this. And this is one of the reasons I think it's important to talk to Yakov, because it's not two guys in a basement asking mom to bring him juice while they have a meeting, right? This is, and and Yakov, and even the term ultra-Orthodox Jew, Yakov, to some extent, he doesn't think he's ultra-Orthodox, Maybe Orthodox, but he just thinks he's a Jew. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, no, I I understand um, what he's saying when people say that uh, ultra Orthodox. It's kind of you know uh, just to make a parody would be like uh, people say you know I you know I support Trump so MAGA well you know to the Biden administration you're ultra MAGA. Right, I've heard that ultra MAGA. 
I've heard that coming up. And it seems to me that Donald Trump is not ultra MAGA because he was clearly more of an advocate for his state of Israel than he was for America. When a choice came down to pick between the U.S. interests and Israel's interests, he went with Israel's interests every time. For instance, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, that was not, there was no U.S. interest. We should not care where the embassy is. And moving it is not in America's best interest. Would you agree with that, Rod? It's not clearly a USA move. No, it brings us no advantage. And I would say the uh, when we strike the uh, Syrian airfield, wasn't wouldn't wouldn't you say that would be also in the name of Israel? Yes, absolutely. And the fact they had someone from GNG in his administration. And I've talked about GNG before, but a lot of people don't know about it. This is a company that was set up to steal Syrian oil. I want to say that very clearly. The purpose of it was to steal Syrian oil because there's oil under disputed Golan Heights. And Israel was claiming they had the right to the oil under the Golan Heights, but clearly Syria did. And for years, America recognized that was Syrian property. But what Trump did at the behest of Jared Kushner and Alan Dershowitz, they recognized Israel's right to the oil, that what they call the right to the oil, I, I don't acknowledge it, but they acknowledge that Israel's, it's Israel's oil. And the people on the board, I've talked about GNG many times, the people on the board are Rupert Murdoch, Dick Cheney, former Clinton official Larry Summers, also a close friend of Jeffrey Epstein's, uh, Mary Landro, the Democratic senator, former senator from Louisiana, Bill Richardson, former Democratic governor of New Mexico, Rupert Murdoch, Jacob Rothschild, close associate of Mikhail Kordakovsky. So when you look at that, and Michael Steinhardt, Michael Steinhardt's less well-known, but he's a prominent Zionist, and he's an atheist. Michael Steinhardt, have you heard me talk about him before, Rod? Uh, honestly, no, I don't think I've ever heard you, or I don't remember. Everybody, don't else on, everybody else on the board is more or less a household name, right? People like Dick Cheney and Jacob Rothschild and Rupert Murdoch, famous, right? Michael Steinhardt, yeah. Yeah. you ask most people who Michael Steinhardt is, they have no idea. Michael Steinhardt is a pioneer of the hedge fund. His father was Red McGee, a jewel fence for Meyer Lansky, the mobster. That's his, and by the way, he got the initial money for his business from his father. 
So his father was a jewel thief. And Meyer Lansky, of course, a fervent, a, a fervent financial supporter of Israel. Uh, so, but that's worth. Michael Steinhardt is a Zionist, but he's an atheist Zionist. Which means, as far as I'm concerned, he's not Jewish. If you're an atheist, I don't think you're Jewish. In the same way that if you're an atheist, I don't think you're a Christian or a Muslim. I think you're an atheist. Someone talked today about secular Jews, because I was bickering about people with this on Twitter. They talked about secular Jews. I never yes, hear... Wait, wait, say again, Command Central? No, no, I was just saying I saw that uh, people were talking about Zionism with you on, on Twitter. Yes, and so they said there's, there's, sec, there's such a thing as secular Jews. Secular means, you know, not having a belief in God or religion. And you don't hear about secular Christians because it's absurd. You don't hear about he's a God-believing atheist, right? You wouldn't describe someone as a God-believing atheist. You'd say that's a contradiction in terms. But for some reason— yeah, exactly. People hear secular Jew and is okay with him. Michael Steinhardt, he's not just an atheist Jew, supposedly, but as a Zionist, he literally believes that Jews should not believe in God. I'll say it again. He believes, and he said this in interviews, he believes that Jews should abandon their belief in God. And in their place, they should have the state of Israel. So if they want to worship something, he's saying, not God, Israel. That sounds wacky, doesn't it? I mean, it almost sounds like something I made up. But yeah, no, that that's I, I had I had to <laughs> I had to I had to digest that like that just that's just crazy. And and he's actually said that in interviews. Jews should worship Israel as their God. And this is why I've said Zionism promotes an anti-religious. It also promotes bad definitions. But we'll be talking about that with Yaakov Shapiro and with the current situation in Israel with Jeff Halper on the show. Now, the other thing I want to point out that happened last, I forget, the vote was last night, I think. But they voted to codify Roe versus Wade, right? Was that last night? Yeah, that's what, that's sure. what I thought. Sometimes I catch up on the news later. So if it happened this morning, I would have known the difference. But the vote to codify Roe versus Wade failed, as everyone thought it would. And Sherrod Brown, I think it was Sherrod Brown, was on Twitter this morning, and he said every Republican voted not to codify Road versus Wade. And he kind of implied that was a bad thing. But I don't think most Republicans who heard that thought it was a bad thing. Do you, Rod? Do you think Republicans think it's bad that Republicans voted not to codify Road versus Wade? Do I think... Republicans think it's bad? Yeah. No, I don't think so. No. 
Right. It's completely consistent. And in fact, I think a lot of Republicans would have been bothered if any Republicans had voted to codify Roe versus Wade. Yeah. They don't like, they think it's bad law. So when we come back, we'll talk to Jeff Halper from Israel. Let's take a short break. And we'll be back, be back right after this on The Backstory. On the backstory, 105.5 FM, AM 1390, in Washington, D.C., Virginia, and Maryland. Our next guest we had on before, and we love having him on, Jeff Halper grew up in the upper Midwest of America, Hibbing, Minnesota, to be exact. But decades ago, he moved to Israel. He's a peace activist and writer. Jeff Halper, how are you doing? All right. I'm very good hanging in there. How are you guys? We're doing great, but although it's weird, as you can tell, it's a weird time in America. Yeah, it's been a weird time in America since about 1740, I think. No, I think, but have you noticed, I often wonder, you're an expatriate, right? Mm. You're an American who lives away. Proud of it. I've often, right, and I've often thought expatriates have an interesting detachment from America in, in the sense that they can look at it from a third-party perspective and the day-to-day, you know, garbage, I'll put it, uh, they don't have to deal with. Have you found your perspective, does you think it gives you a clear view on America, being an expatriate? Of course. Uh, you know, of course it does. And, and you're an expatriate because there's a reason why you're ex. Every time I come back to the States, I remember why I left, you know? Uh, you know, it's just, a, you know, I think the United States for people that know it, that are expats and for many people in the world, is just a huge disappointment. This is a country, you know, that talks about democracy and freedom and you've got a constitution and you've got all of that and you've got all the money in the world, all the resources, you know, you have, you have elementary schools with libraries that universities in most countries don't have. With all those resources, all those freedoms, and all the privileges, it's a dumb country. You know, it treats the rest of the world like crap. You know, you're invading every country. It's all militaristic. People don't know anything. They don't want to know anything about this. So it's all, it's all me. It's all, you know, the United States takes about a third of the world's resources every year in consumption and gives absolutely nothing back except military weapons. That's it. There's no American presence in the world that isn't military. You know, I don't even know if there's a Peace Corps anymore. I mean, at least there were 10 Americans running around in a Peace Corps at one point. I don't even know where that went. But, you know, you're, you're using the world and giving nothing back. And, I th- and, you know, but with big words like freedom and democracy and all this stuff and talking about how you're be- the best in the world, where if you look at every single index – education, housing, health, you know, whatever it is, you're around the bottom. 
of the developing countries. So, you know, you get a real perspective and, and, and a real sense of, of disappointment at how this country could have really contributed to the world and instead has just become a burden, a drag on the world. That's the expat perspective. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great answer, Jeff. And how much of a symbiotic relationship that America has with Israel do you attribute some of that to? Because you know the major parties, the Democrats and Republicans, are funded by Israel to the point where Sheldon Adelson was Donald Trump's chief funder. And his he's a one-issue person. His issue is Israel. So... How do you view the relationship between U.S. and Israel politically and the problems you're talking about? You know, there's a joke. You know, why doesn't Israel want to be the 51st state? Why? Because then it would, then it would only have two senators. <laughs> you see? And so, of yeah. course, it's, a symbiotic, it's not symbiotic so much. It's, uh, you know, the uh, uh, Israel is kind of the tail that wags the dog. You know, Israel is a very... Uh, you know, I wrote this book, War Against the People, about this. Israel is a very useful surrogate for the United States in terms of developing military technologies, surveillance technologies, police tactics with the United States, and then exporting them to the rest of the world. And at the same time, of course, uh, especially in the Middle East, uh, being the surrogate of American power here. Um, and at the same time, of course, Israel... Um, it's it's hard to it's hard to you know I, I mean I mean Americans use Israel you know the Jews use it I mean the Jews use it in the Democratic Party um, uh, you know somehow with the idea that um, that you got to protect Israel but it's become like a self fulfilling fulfilling kind of a thing because without being critical of Israel you can't help it get past this uh, stupid occupation and the oppression of the Palestinians. For the Republicans, you know, that are run by the evangelicals, basically, the evangelicals really use Israel in order to, uh, in order to, um, uh, you know, bring on Armageddon. You know, I remember Pat Robertson was very upset when Israel pulled out of Lebanon in 1982 because he ex that was supposed to be the trigger for Armageddon. And here Israel, you know, in other words, we're supposed to sacrifice ourselves in order to bring upon world, you know, the world Holocaust in which, of course, uh, Jesus comes back, the second coming of Christ and all of that. But the Jews die. So it's not exactly a pro-Semitic kind of a scenario. And again, for the Jews in the Democratic Party, they use it. They use Israel as a way of uh, propping up their. Their Judaism, you know, it has nothing to do with Israel. They don't come here. They don't want to come here. Eighty-five percent of the tourists here are Christians. Uh, Jews don't come, but they use Israel in order to sort of boost an American. It's the only thing that keeps them from turning into wasps. So both Democrats and Republicans use Israel, and Israel uses them. You know, Jews in the United States, together with Israeli funding, provides more funding for American political parties, both parties, than corporations do. So there's a tremendous symbiotic and uh, really corrupt and cynical relationship between the two countries. And I think that's uh, very interesting observations. And the one I slightly disagree with is that the I don't think the evangelicals run the Republicans anymore. 
I think that was true clearly at one point, mm -hmm. uh, the 80s and 90s. But I think there's something different. Donald Trump is not an evangelical. Far from it. But he He's was far clearly in the... What was that, Jeff? I don't think Barry Goldwater would call him a Republican. Right. No, and, and, and he clearly was beholden to... He pays lip service to evangelicals, but I think a lot of Republicans now are pro-Israel because they see it as they see a, a, what I consider a false choice. You're either with Israel or you're with Islamic terrorists. And I think post 9-11, a lot of Americans who are Republican fall into that category. The false choice between being an Islamic terrorist and the people who knocked down the you know, Al Qaeda and so on. No, no, Islamophobia is a part of it, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, Trump's base, not Trump. I mean, Trump isn't his base. His base is working class, poor rural people, and he's a billionaire from New York. But Trump's base is ev evangelically based, I would say, certainly religiously based, and mainly rural and mainly working class, and that fits very much into this whole evangelical idea of the coming of Christ. I mean, you know, this whole anti-abortion thing is based on Christ and Jesus and religion, and that all, you know, Israel exploits that, and they exploit Israel. Now, I'm curious about that. You brought up the abortion issue. I'm curious, as someone who lives in a foreign country, how does Israel view the issue of abortion? I asked Dmitry Babich's way him on, and I asked him how Russia views it. Because I clearly in America, the issue of abortion is front and center. And I don't think it's as front and center in many countries. No, it's a non-issue in most countries. It's taken for granted that it's a part of women's productive rights. You know, that's where the United States is probably the least progressive of any developed country. You know, in Israel, I have to say, as critical as, am, am I, as I am of Israel, uh, and I'm, you know, super critical of Israel, uh, you know, like European countries. It's a welfare state. You know, it has a socialist background. Socialism here isn't a dirty word. You've got a, you've got a healthcare system. You know, I just did a kidney transplant a few months ago. I don't know how much it would cost you in the States, not only for the transplant, for the medical stuff, for the medicines you have to take, for the checkups, for the, you know what it costs me here? It costs me $30 a month. That's it for everything, for medicines, for doctors, the hospital, the op, everything, because it's covered by your national health insurance. The whole idea that you somehow have to pay privately or through insurance companies for health is a primitive idea in every, in every European country, including Israel, you know. And uh, the whole idea that, uh, that uh, you shouldn't have, uh, you know, women shouldn't have uh, protections and shouldn't have full health care, and that somehow religion has something to do with health. I mean, that's those are just completely incomprehensible ideas, I think, in most of the world. They've tried in Europe and Israel to, to get anti, you know, the evangelicals have been around. They've been trying to get anti-abortion uh, campaigns going, and it just makes no sense to people. It's, it's just gotten nowhere. I assume, I also think we're unique, because we go the other way too, where some people are proposing right up to the moment of birth and even after. And 
And, and a lot of countries, they restricted to the first trimester. And that seems to be the, the I, I'll say compromise. I don't know exactly mean compromise. I can't think of a better word right now. The, the compromise that everyone accepts is some abortion limitations, but not total restriction. Jeff, do you know what is in Israel? What, what is in Israel? What the what the restriction is is the first trimester. What the law is there? I don't even know. I don't think that I don't know if there is a law. I think it just has to do with the women's woman's health, the health of the baby situation. I I've never heard that there's a maybe there is a timeline. I mean, I don't think a normal woman in a normal situation at nine months would go for an abortion. But uh, I'm not. I don't think it's it's an issue. It has less to do with time, and it has more to do with the health. And the of the baby and the mother, you know, you know, if you're talking about perceptions of the U.S., I think one of the huge perceptions, certainly abroad, is that it's a cruel country. It's a mean country. It's a country that's mean to its own people. You know, it's mean to its minorities. It's mean to immigrants. It's mean to its own working people. It's mean to women. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a mean country. You know, I used to you know I, I thought about that when I was you know. Uh, listening to Woody Guthrie back in the 60s. You know, Woody Guthrie was active in the Depression. You know, he's a, he was a hobo during the Depression with his guitar. And, you know, here's the Depression. I mean, the whole, you know, there's no economy. Everybody's, so so guys get on trains to go to find work. And every stop, they're getting beaten up by the police. They're getting thrown in jail. They're getting attacked by local citizens. You know, I mean, I mean, these are, are criminals. I mean, they're not even immigrants. They're normal Americans that are simply looking for work in, at a time of a depression. And that always left a huge impression on me. And I think that that's really underlying the American thing. It's a it's a mean country. There's no compassion, not for other people and not for not for your own people. And I think that has something to do with this whole uh, this whole anti-abortion thing, all these Mean things, you know, the death penalty. I mean, you guys kill more people than oh, any country except Saudi Arabia, I think, you know. You've got you've got 25 uh, percent uh, of the world's prisoners in prison are in the United States. You know, it's just a, it's a you know, there's no safety net for people. I watched this uh, what Netflix series made about this single woman who's trying to just, you know, make a life for herself and her kid. You know, and, and the terrible, you know, there's no safety net. There's no real welfare system. I, it's just that I tell you the truth. It's a, it's a terrible country. It's not the kind of country you'd want to live in. in my, from my point of view, there's nothing. I can't think of anything really. If you're if you have money, you know, if you're upper middle class, maybe. But even if you're a young uh, white professional person, you've got no future. There's no horizon. You know, the, this generation of kids has no hope of getting its own homes. It'll live at a life standard lower than their parents. You know, there's no job security. Uh, you know, the 1% really do run things. And everybody else is, is, you don't have to be poor and working class. Even middle class, white, young people uh, have no have really no future and no jobs and no security in their lives. You know, they're not even getting married at, at early ages anymore, you know, if, if at all, not having kids. I mean, it's really awful, you know, I think what's happening there. And, uh, uh, you know, even people in high tech, you say, oh, wow, I'm in high tech. I'm 22 years old. I'm making $100,000 a year. Yeah, 
But that lasts maybe for a couple of years. And then, boom, you're replaced. When you get to be 25, 26, 27, you're replaced by another 22-year-old. So, you know, you're living the good life for a few years, and then you're out on the streets. So it's, it's not a country that takes care of its people. There's no idea. And, of course, this is the whole conservative thing. There's no idea. But it's also Joe Manchin. It doesn't want people to feel entitled. This whole idea that you're not, you are entitled. You are entitled to, to basic things, health care, housing, welfare. Uh, you know, there are basic things in life that, yes, you are entitled. And the state has a responsibility. And in the United States, they don't see that. They see the state as being, uh, you know, somehow, uh, you know, you know, Tucker Carlson says trying to take control of your lives and your minds. And so you're willing to throw everybody under the bus for these crazy uh, uh, you know, dumb kinds of ideologies that aren't aren't even ideologies, and it's it's. I don't know. It's, <laughs> you got me going. I was planning to talk about. Well, Israel, no, but- that's great. That's great. You no, know, it's a a nice little rant there, Jeff. Yeah. And I'm just picturing you you in your youth listening to Woody Guthrie in Hemming, Minnesota, down yeah. the street from Bob Zimmer and Bob Dylan, another yeah, Woody right. Guthrie fan. <laughs> what, what were all these Jews in Hibbing doing listening to Woody Guthrie? Why? Hibbing was a very uh, progressive place, you know. Northern Minnesota was uh, very socialist. It's where the co-op, cooperative movement began in the United States. Minnesota in general, you know, Hubert Humphrey. I don't even know if your generation remembers Hubert Humphrey. He was a vice president of the United States once uh, under Johnson. Um, Humphrey, when he began My generation his career, does, but I'm an old man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. He ran as a as a socialist for mayor of of Minneapolis, just barely lost until the next time he ran as a Democrat. So actually, in the Upper Midwest, you have a very strong, uh, you know, Wisconsin with Lafollette, and you had socialist mayors in Milwaukee, and you know there was a it was a very progressive Minnesota is still progressive vis a vis Wisconsin, Michigan, and the rest of the of its neighbors. So, you know, there's no reason why we shouldn't listen to Woody Guthrie. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's it's just very interesting to me culturally, of course, as a Dylan fan, that's interesting too. But now, so let's talk about the thing that's been in the headlines. A Al Jazeera journalist, a Palestinian American woman named Shireen Abdul Akbar right. was shot and killed on May 11th in a protest she was covering Yesterday. What was, who is, now a lot of people may not have heard of her, but she's very well known. Uh She's on Al Jazeera, the Arabic version, correct? Can you talk about that for a second? Who is she? Yeah, she was uh, the main Al Jazeera reporter. I mean, mainly Arabic, but she was also in English. You know, her English was, she's an American citizen besides being a Palestinian. Um, So her English was fluent. And she was like, yeah, the, vo- the, the face of, um, of reporting, of journalism uh, in, the Arab, in the Arab media. You know, she was here in Palestine and she went everywhere and was very articulate and very well known and very good at her job. Very, uh, you know, she had a very good analysis and she was very good with people. And, you know, she, yeah, she was like, I, I'm trying to think of a, you know, a popular reporter in the U.S. to, uh, to um, you know, associated with. I can't really think of anybody, but yeah, she was that the person that you listened to when you wanted to know what was really going on. 
very progressive. Uh, yeah, really a very impressive woman. Yeah, household name. I, that's that's what I emphasize. This is somebody who was widely known there, and again was on. I did speak. She was from New Jersey, I believe, but she was well known on the Arabic version of Al Jazeera, which most yeah, people no, here know. That's right. Right. And that's significant because it's huge news, obviously, over there. Now, there have been conflicting stories. At first, the IDF said they didn't do it. Now, what's the state of... I heard the Palestinian Authority has rejected a joint investigation with that's the right. IDF. That's right. What's, what's the status now? Well, you know... Uh I mean, <laughs> that's the kind of the weird thing a little bit, you know, in Israel, you know, nobody cares if uh, how she was killed, why she was killed, who she was. No one here ever heard of her, even though she, I mean, that shows you how disconnected Israel is from its from its neighbors. People here have never heard of her, even though she's the, uh, you know, the uh, the uh, face of Palestine in the whole Middle East. Uh, but Israelis are more concerned with their image. What does this do for our image? How can we counter the bad publicity? Now everybody's going to start criticizing Israel. You know, that's what they're concerned about rather than really getting to the truth of things. Uh, and uh, and in some ways, I think it's irrelevant who killed her. You know, I think she was killed by Israelis. I mean, it's, you know, the Israeli army first denied it. And the denial has gotten weaker and weaker and weaker over the last day or two. We'll see. We, we still don't know. But it really doesn't matter in a way, because what in, the, what in the hell were the Israeli soldiers doing in Jenin? I mean, first of all, this is area A of the West Bank. And what that means that people don't know about is that under the Oslo agreements that Israel claims are still valid, area A is out of limits for Israelis. This is under the authority of the Palestinian Authority. And the fact that Israel's there hunting down Palestinians invading houses, demolishing houses in, in, a, in a dense refugee camp, that's somehow okay. So if she was killed by Palestinian return fire to the Israeli soldiers, Palestinian resistance, then somehow we're off the hook. But we're not off the hook. What in the hell are we doing there in the first place? What about the occupation? You know, uh, you know for, for the last 54 years. There's one Israeli uh, fellow that put it very well in a way. <laughs> he said it's like it's like a mafioso guy, you know. You got a guy that's uh, killing people his whole life, and once he gets caught or once he gets arrested for killing someone he didn't kill. <laughs> so what does that mean? He's okay. He's off the hook. He's a good guy. You know, it's like that. You know, Israel is in these camps. It's killed uh, almost every single day a Palestinian is killed uh, in uh, in the occupied territory. You know, many children as well. Uh, but And somehow if Israel happens to, you know, be accused of uh, killing someone and they didn't do it, then OK, well, then we're fine instead of looking at it, at Israel's whole record. So it's not clear who killed her, and I guess we'll we'll find out. But uh, but the main thing is that this is a journalist uh, who shouldn't have died, and uh, you know, uh, covering an Israeli invasion of a Palestinian community that shouldn't have happened. Now, another thing I found out in researching her a little bit is her parents were actually Palestinian Christians, something a lot of Republicans don't know exists. Exactly. <laughs> 
Right. No, so, that's right. They don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of Christians that come here and they're surprised that there are Palestinian Christians. I mean, I don't know why, because, I mean, who in the hell was Jesus? <laughs> he wasn't the Pal- I mean, he was a Palestinian Jew, but, you know, kind of began that whole Christian thing. And this is where Christianity began. I mean, where is Bethlehem? Where's Nazareth? Where's Jerusalem? It's, it's here. So how can they not think that there's a Palestinian Christian community? But it's true. And that's part of, again, that's part of the disappointment. You know, Americans don't know anything about the world that they live in, even though they run the world. I mean, they send their weapons all over, but they don't know anything about it and they don't really care about it. And, uh, you know, that's, I think, part of the... uh, you know, the disappointment in the United States. But yeah, she was a Palestinian Christian. Yeah. Well, well, and and part of this, this protest was a raid on a house. It's recently, in, in currently in Israel, it's my understanding, there are like some 4,000, I might have been a Mercedes wrong, but about 4,000 new settlements going up. 4,000 housing units. Right. 4,000 housing units within the settlements, yeah. Yeah, and that's significant, right? That's right. You know, in, in other words, uh, you have an occupation. I mean, here the United States says we're committed to what's called the two-state solution, the state of Israel next door to the state of Palestine. There's two peoples here. They each should have a state of their own. The Israeli state would be three times larger than the Palestinian state, but okay, forget that. Two states. That's been the American position since 1967, since the occupation began. And there's been a million negotiations. But what the United States does not do is prevent Israel from building settlements that foreclose any Palestinian state. In other words, in other words, Israel's moved almost a million Israeli citizens into the territory, the West Bank and East Jerusalem, that's supposed to be a Palestinian state. (laughs) So here you're saying we support, you know, Biden and everybody. I mean, uh, Trump and uh, uh, Democrats, Republicans together say, yes, we support the two-state solution, but do nothing to stop Israel from destroying the two-state solution. I mean, where's the Palestinian state going to emerge if you've got a million Israelis living in this little territory uh, you know that is supposed to uh, to arise from, so that's that's really the cynicism cynicism all. So the American government says, well, Israel shouldn't be building settlements. I think this nutty uh, spokesperson from the uh, State Department, Ned Price, terribly uh, just a inarticulate, dumb guy. I don't know. I, really, I mean, even the spokespeople for the, the Americans are are terrible. You know, he says something like, well, they shouldn't really be building settlements. We condemn that, 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 that. but they're not going to do anything to stop it. And so in front of our eyes, Israel has eliminated the two-state solution. Uh, and yet no one will admit that, you see. And so, and of course, no one is in favor of, of what I'm in favor of, which is one democratic state for everybody in this country, equal citizenship. Somehow for Americans, the idea of a democracy is is anathema. You, you force democracy on Iraq, you force democracy on on uh, every other country and go out and fight them if they don't accept democracy, except the Palestinians. Palestinians say, okay, you know what, we're buying. Yes, we would like some democracy and freedom. Can we have some, please? And the answer is no. 
from the United States. No, you can't have it because we support Israel. And so you've got to live under occupation. You've got to live under a two-state idea that will never be. You've got to just simply live, you know, as Israelis are taking your land, demolishing your houses, building settlements on, on your land, crowding you out, locking you into an apartheid kind of a, of a Bantustan. You have to take that. And if you resist, as they do in Janine, for example, you know, Israel will send in its army armed with American M-16s and American weaponry. 80% of, of, Israeli, of Israeli weapons come from the United States uh, in order to attack the Palestinians, who are then considered terrorists. <laughs> so Israel, which is a state terrorist country, is somehow fine. Uh, but the Palestinians who are fighting for their freedom and their liberation, they're the terrorists. See how the whole thing has been turned on its, on, on its head. Uh, and that's why this terrible conflict, you know, continues. And that's why nobody, nobody trusts the United States in the world, because it's so clear that they're always on the wrong side. They're on the side of these, uh, the Saudis, who just executed 81 people. The largest mass execution in history was done in public, uh, you know, just last month in Saudi Arabia. They, they hung, they strangled, and they crucified. They crucified people in Saudi Arabia. 81 people, including kids, for a million different kinds of reasons. You know, And they're the friends of the United States. But the Palestinians, who are living under occupation, who are fighting for their freedom, they're the ones the Americans call terrorists. And then they, they allow Israel to attack them, to build settlements on their land, and so on. So, you know, if you, you know, in the United States, it's not an issue because, I mean, who even knows where the West Bank is or who Palestinians are or whatever. But for the rest of the world that do know where the Palestinians really have become emblematic of, of a people fighting for its freedom that every oppressed people really identifies with, it's a big deal. And I don't think the Americans really appreciate how isolated they are in the world how really the world looks at them as with contempt almost because of the way they treat the Palestinians and all other oppressed peoples, while at the same time bolstering dictators like, uh, you know, like Sisi in Egypt and the Saudis and the Gulf states and the Moroccan king. You know, th these terrible regimes are all supported militarily, especially by the United States, uh, you know, and people fighting for their freedom. I mean, it, you know, Patrice Lumumba, <laughs> that could have saved Africa. You know, the Congo is such a terrible place today. Lumumba was assassinated by the CIA. Who wasn't, you know, the, the guy that was putting Iran on the track to democracy in the, in the 50s was, was, was taken out of power by the CIA. You know, Guatemala was, uh, was the, the guy who was assassinated by this. I mean, every, every time a, per, a, a people raised its head for a little bit of freedom, it was the Americans that would come down and, and kill them and oppress them. So that's really, the Americans think of themselves as this democracy that everybody admires and they're spreading freedom in the world, but the rest of the world looks at them exactly the opposite. As a cynical people that use freedom as a, as a pretext for invading other people's countries and supporting dictators, basically. And of course, you, you can remember a time when the Democrats spoke out against the CIA. You remember, of course, the church community hearings and was yeah. led by a Democrat. But today, the Democrats love the CIA and actively 
sing your praises. And let me ask you finally about the squad, Elon Omar, AOC, yeah. and others. Here in this country, a lot of Donald Trump Elon does this Omar too. Elon Omar Minnesota, by the way. Remember a, that. A lot of, right, right. A lot of Republicans consider the squad these radical, you know, and she's called, but, but in the recent vote on the Ukrainian war, not one single Democrat, it's not even, this is not voting whether you support them in spirit. This is voting $40 billion for them. Not one Democrat stepped out of line. They all voted. And the Democrats have clearly become the party of war. What do you think of the squad? Do you think they're strong advocates for Palestine? Uh, not really. I mean, uh, Rashid Tlaib from Detroit is because, uh, you know, she, her constituency, I think, is largely Arab in Detroit. I mean, Detroit has a huge Arab population. Um, you know, AOC is in a different situation. You know, she's in New York. <laughs> and even though I don't know how much of a Jewish population she has in her constituency, but, you know, uh, it's not an Arab-dominated constituency. So for American politicians, you know, they're not able to take principled positions, usually, especially on the issue of Palestine-Israel. Because, uh, you know, it's a lose-lose proposition for a, for, for a politician. You'll get condemned by your own party. You know, the Democrats have always been more pro-Israel than the Republicans. I mean, the Republicans traditionally were the business party. They were into oil they were into the Arab world and they were they were very anti-Semitic. You know, Dick Cheney wouldn't allow Jews in his country club. You know, today they're both pro-Israel, but the Democrats have always been much more pro-Israel than the Republicans. Um, and so, you know, she can't get criticized by her own party. She doesn't want to get criticized by the Jewish community. It'll come down hard on her and fund her opponent in the next election. She'll get in trouble with the media. You know, the Christians will come down on her. For a politician, you say, look, you know, Palestine isn't my issue. I can hear AOC saying, or Elon, uh, uh, you know, uh, all the squad, you know, I think there's, uh, what's her name from Massachusetts? Um, uh, Presley, I think is one of them as well. I can't remember her first name. Um, uh, you know, they would all say, you know, uh, we have our battles to fight. You know, I want to fight for Black Lives Matter. I want to fight for equal housing. I want to fight for uh, an end to American militarism. I, whatever your battle is, they would all say pretty much, Palestine is not my battle. In other words, it's important as an issue maybe, but it's not important to my constituents. It's not an issue that the Americans really care about. And so I have to, rather than taking an unpopular position and getting voted out of power, I'll I'll leave that alone and I'll focus on issues that might be controversial, but they're issues that are important to me and to my constituents. And I think that's the problem. You know, it's very hard for an American politician to back an issue or advocate for an issue simply based on its on its justice. Or, you know, uh, uh, you know, it, it somehow has to fit into uh, uh you know the you know the party or the or the or the government's uh, uh, priorities in ideologies. And if your party is uh, supports Israel, you know you say why would I go against that and get in trouble 
and then neutralize myself in terms of all the other issues that I could be dealing with. So it's a, you know, I, I can understand in a way the squad not taking as principal position as they should, but you know, that's, that's politics in a way. Yes. And some people are getting very frustrated with the Democrats. Some people who are progressive are getting very frustrated with them. But I want to point out that none of the rhetoric from the right, they're so-called radical left wing. That's not true. They're not radical. There's establishment. Yeah. They're going along. They would be be, uh, Roosevelt uh, Democrats at best. Right. Jeff, thanks for staying later with us. We had a great conversation. Jeff Halper, where can people find your stuff, your writing, and so on? Uh, well, I have a new book called uh, Decolonizing Israel, Liberating Palestine. But uh, the organization I run is called the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions. So they can look up uh, on the internet, ICAD, I-C-A-H-D, Dot org, and they'll get my writings and, and a lot of the stuff uh, about Palestine that we write about. So welcome, and everybody's welcome to be in touch with me as well. Thanks for having me on. Of course, Jeff. It was always a good conversation with you. Jeff Halper, passionate anti-war activist and pro-Palestinian Jeff Halper. Rod, what did you think of the conversation with Jeff? I thought it was great. I, I thought I thought the conversation was great. I think it's fair to describe him as passionate, don't you? <laughs> yeah, no, I think he's very passionate about how he feels about America. And really what I'm trying to do, I, I just want to end early with Jeff because we had kept him. It's What time is over here? Is it almost midnight? Yeah, it is going to be midnight. Yep, it's coming. So I appreciate Jeff staying on with us and later when we had him scheduled to be. And I wanted him to go. But I want to point out that uh, the Republicans really, Donald Trump, you remember him talking recently about the radical leftists. Not really. He likes, you see what I'm saying? He likes to paint Elon Omar. Yeah. That was the conversation where Donald Trump also talked about, he praised how Israel used to run Congress. Remember that? Yeah, we played He's, that clip. Yeah. He said it was great. But that's not America first. That's not Ultra MAGA. That's that's my point there. But Israel runs Congress, I would say, more than ever, because like Jeff pointed out, they're caught up in the politics of this, and no one can step out of line. There's not one single Democrat. It wouldn't affect the votes. I'll put it like this. If five Democrats had not funded the Ukraine war, if five Democrats had said, you know what? We want this money to go to free daycare for kids or free college or Medicare, whatever, for all. If five Democrats had come out and said that, it wouldn't have affected the vote, right? They still would have won. But they can't have one Democrat that takes a principal position. And that's why it's becoming the party of war. Next hour, we're talking to 
Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro about the broader issue of Zionism and the issues of the day. This is the backstory. from the empire of lies, an oasis of truth and free speech in the vast barren wasteland that is the Biden administration. I'm Lee Stranahan. We're joining this hour by guest co-host Carter Laren from unsafespace.com on The Backstory. And thanks again to Jeff Halper coming at us from Israel by way of Hibbing, Minnesota. I, I find it fascinating because Jeff, I met reference to, but we've talked before, Jeff. Jeff did know Bob Dylan when he was growing up. Remember him saying that, Rod? Yeah, I do remember him saying that, and that's uh, it's pretty ironic because I think we were talking about him, about Bob Dylan before he was on, and then come to find out he, he knows him. Yeah, it's because when I heard Jeff was from Hipping, Minnesota, that's where Dylan's from. Bob Dylan, real name Bob Robert Zimmerman. Uh, from Hibbing, Minnesota. But a great conversation with Jeff. And again, I don't agree with a lot of stuff Jeff is saying, but this is a free speech zone and a place for civil discourse. And I think it's important that people hear without somebody trying to cut them off what a real progressive, what a real leftist thinks living outside the country. And he can state his views. And that's what I love that we do here. This hour, we have Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro and Carter Laren is our guest host, as I mentioned, from Unsafe Space. Hey, Carter, how you doing? I'm doing well. How you doing, Lee? Good. Great to have you with us. And do me a favor, put some bass in your voice and say the name of the show. Then we'll talk after the music stops. I'm bad at putting bass in my voice, but I'll give it a shot. You're listening to The Backstory. We try to achieve, when we say the backstory, sometimes a Liam Neeson level of gravitas. And you'll either get there a reference or you won't, and I don't care. But, but I like uh, Liam Neeson, but not, gravitas is also not my expertise. Right. Now, now, now Carter, we're going to talk with Rabbi Agav Shapiro. Have you, are you familiar with the rabbi's work? A little bit. I, I listened to an interview he gave with uh, David Goa, I think, and uh, he's a fascinating guy. So I'm excited to. Yeah, right. I, I love Yakov. And I think you'll find it interesting because I know something about some of your interests. And although Israel Palestine, I assume, is not central to your interests, right? It's, it's not central to your interests. That's a good assumption. Right. But I know epistemology is the way people think about ideas. And also, Yakov's very he. You, do you know what Yakov's podcast is called? No, I don't. Committing High Reason. <laughs> yeah, I like him already. Right. I, I thought you would. Now, the issue of Zionism is a fun, fundamentally a epistemological issue to me. And you'll see that, I think, as we talk to Yakov this hour. But 
Mem, do you remember now? I, I know an issue that is one of your central concerns is the existence of world culture and the beliefs of world culture. Now, do you remember? I'm sure you caught the news story when the dictionary, I think it was the Oxford Dictionary, literally changed the definition of what racism is to a woke definition. Do you remember when that happened? Yeah, I actually think it was Merriam-Webster. And just so your okay. viewers know, something I've been doing for a long time, I've been encouraging people to do for years, I'm going to encourage everyone who's listening to do this. I have old dictionaries. Go to an old bookstore, buy old dictionaries, stick them on your shelf because you cannot trust the people who run dictionary companies with their internet definitions anymore. So I've got a 1920s dictionary I can whip out whenever I want and look at what words used to mean, and I find it extremely useful. Well, also, I like to point out, and I'm sure this is something you'll enjoy talking about, people don't understand often the reason for the definition of things, right? In, in other words, there's a reason. It's not arbitrary. It, a word isn't just anything you want to call it. For instance, racism, I'll put it like this. There are many reasons to be biased. For instance, you can be biased against someone because of their religion or because of their race or because of their gender or because of their politics. You can say, I hate Republicans, they're all liars. That's a political bias. Racism, the reason it's important to have an accurate definition, and I think the only accurate definition is some kind of bias or prejudice based on race. The reason you have that is to differentiate it from other forms of prejudice. Do you agree with that broadly? Yes, it's a narrow form of prejudice based on race. Uh, I, I would probably, there's some nuance in there. Um, although you're probably familiar with the analytic synthetic dichotomy problem in epistemology and why we should be careful uh, viewing definitions as the complete description of a concept. But but broadly, I agree with you, yes. Now, the definition that they changed it to, and you're right, it was Mary Webster, I forgot. But uh, the definition they changed it to is a woke one, which is racism is prejudice plus power. Right. And that's a stupid yep. definition. And I would argue it adds nothing to the purpose of the definition. Plus power and it's well defined. It does add it, it, it allows them to argue that only people in, quote, power. And of course, that's uh, an intentionally uh, vague and, and uh, really ambiguous thing in and of itself. What does power mean? Sexual power, monetary power, government power, how much power? What does like that's a that's a huge question, right? But it allows them to say it's impossible to be racist if you don't have power, which is which, you know, the purpose of that definition is to exclude bad behavior from uh, entire swaths of society so that only certain people can be criticized because remember the left the woke's agenda is to tear down the west and so uh any definition that says only people in power can be this bad thing and anyone not in power can't be this bad thing well that's only helpful to them because uh they can go around and behave however they would like and you can't accuse them of being racist because they're not quote in power right Exactly. It doesn't serve 
the, the purpose of the definition, if clarifying the language is going to help, but it's sort of a political purpose. And I would say there's a lot of issues around Zionism where things have been changed for political purposes. For instance, when people say the definition is Jew, it's ethnic. It allows people to say you can't criticize George Soros because it's anti-Semitic. And there could be an anti-Semitic description. If someone says, why do you hate George Soros? And someone said, that hook-nosed bastard, blah, blah, blah. Then, okay, that's an anti-Semite. Or he doesn't like noses. I'm just assuming he's anti-Semitic. <laughs> right. But I do he's believe that- He's a rhino bigot. Yeah. Right. That, <laughs> that's funny, rhino bigot. But there, there can be- anti-Semitic hatred of George Soros. But most people who don't like George Soros don't like the things he funds, for instance. They see him funding Black Lives Matter. And even criticism of that is not inherently racist. It can be, but by smearing it all together, it's a way of quelling debate. Do you think so, Carter? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a tactic that you see. If someone's interested in some of these leftist tactics, they're not they're not new. Solinsky's uh, Rules for Radicals lays out some of this stuff. But you know, one one of the tactics that they do here is uh, if there is any possible offensive reason for you to disagree with someone. So let's say you don't like George Soros for whatever reason. It doesn't matter. Um, if they they look at George Soros and they say, well, is there anything that we could? Uh, is there any way we could construe your disagreement? in some bad light. And they say, oh, well, he's Jewish. Therefore, we can call you anti-Semitic. Or if you want to criticize Ibram X. Kendi for being an absolute moron and an evil racist, someone will look at that and say, well, how can we, oh, he's black. You must be racist. That's why you're criticizing him. Um, and of course, it doesn't work the other way. If, if, you, uh, if they criticize Candace Owens, it's never because they're racist, uh, if you'll notice. Right. And and they can do it as viciously as they want. They yes. can call her an Aunt Tom or whatever. By the way, I started to watch. I'm. Are you a Candace Owens fan? Uh, not particularly. I appreciate uh, some of the impact that she's had culturally. But I don't think that – I don't find her – you know, I'm not trying to be offensive. I, I just don't find her particularly intelligent and principled on issues. I've seen her hot takes on things that have been – been pretty bad. But then again, she's young. Maybe she'll develop. I don't know. And I think she also has some hot takes that are good. She, she surprised me with some stuff she said about the war. Yes, she has and had positive. some. Yeah, I don't I don't mean to say they're all bad. She's got a lot of really great hot takes. I, my default is to like her, but there's some stuff that I don't I don't love about her. But uh, yeah, well, I mean, I she's very articulate. I, yeah. And I started watching an interview she did. I'm not sure when with Russell Brand, the British comedian and social commentator. And uh, I started watching it last night. And I will say, if you like Candace Owens at all, and I, I have the same opinion you have, I'm not a huge fan, but, you know, she, she, it depends on what she's saying. But that interview with Russell Brand was the best interview I'd seen with her. She's not on stage trying to prove anything. She's simply talking to him like a human being. Do you follow Russell Brand at all? 
Uh, not until recently. I mean, uh, of course, I knew who he was as an, an actor for years, but um, he's only really been on my radar recently because he's been one of these, I'll just say, uh, you know, classical liberals who has had the cojones to call out the woke left for what they're doing. And his stance on COVID has been excellent. Um, I haven't seen his stance on the war, but I assume it's probably pretty good. And uh, I've been very impressed with him, and I think he makes excellent content from what I've seen. Yeah, I really like Ezra Brand. He's he's a dream. If I we could get him on a show, and I won't even tell Rod. Rod, try to get him on a show because I don't know how the hell Rod would do that. But I'm a huge fan of Russell Brand, and uh, he also, I will say, I'm a weirdo because I've talked to Carter before. Ayn Rand is one of my big philosophical influences, the very ultra-rational philosopher. But another one of my influences is the Zen Buddhist philosopher, Alan Watts. So I'm a weirdo. That's a, do you find that an odd combination, Carter? Yes and no. Uh, the older I get, the more I recognize that, although I think objectivism gets a lot of things correct, and I think Rand was brilliant, um, the more I also understand that she doesn't have a lot to say about some of the internal psychological functioning of humans and our and our 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 needs in terms of social interaction and frankly our needs in terms of uh, understanding our own consciousness. I'm I'm becoming more of a fan of Sam Harris lately, who's who you know I don't agree with his his epistemological or I'll say metaphysical agnosticism, but he's, he approaches the idea of conscious living with a, a very, from a very rational perspective about understanding how your mind works. And, and that's the kind of thing that I don't think Rand or objectivist would uh, give a second look to. It's the kind of thing that they would chalk up as hippy dippy and Buddhist and mystical and run screaming. And I don't find Sam Harris mystical at all. And I think he's quite rational. So I, I like Rand. I like objectivism. I, I, I still think she's great about a lot of things, but I think there's some components missing it. And it's not surprising to me, frankly, that, uh, what you've married with objectivism is <laughs> like a, a Buddhist kind of influence. Cause there is something there that I think is valuable. And there's also something that's profoundly focused on reality. For instance, it's hard to argue with this moment right now being the only thing that exists, that in any realistic sense, the future does not yet exist and the past does not exist. The present moment is factually, I, I don't see any way to argue with that rationally. I mean, it depends on what you mean by exist, right? Yeah, I mean, you could say, well, the past right. has existed, but only the present yes. currently exists, right? Right. Ex exactly. That to me is, and it's, and a lot of people treat the past and the future as though it's existent, as though it's as pressing. A lot of times, and and Al, I, Alan Watts made this point. A lot of times, when people get stressed about things, and everyone can think of this in their own life. When they get stressed about something, it's about something in the past or in the future that hasn't happened yet. That if they're yeah, stressed I, about something, you know, you know what I'm saying, Carter. A hundred, yeah, a hundred percent. I'm a hundred percent behind you on that, and I think, 
And that's this is the thing that I think ran. I, I, I hesitate to say she got wrong because I don't think she was really addressing this at all. But I, I will say she got something wrong about it, which is she believed first of all, she had a tabula rasa view of human psychology. In other words, she she believed you were born kind of as a blank slate. Uh, we know that to be false now. Uh, there's a lot of aspects of your psychology and personality that are genetic. Um, and some of them that are, are shaped in early childhood that are near impossible to change. But she had this view that if you adopted the right philosophy and you integrated it well, and you are a perfectly integrated human being and really adopted that philosophy, um, then you would have a specific experience in psychology that would come out of that. And I, I think that's provably false, uh, at this point. And, and I don't think she really took the approach of recognizing that, you know, um, just because your philosophy is 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 sound and you have integrated it well, that doesn't mean you're in uh, you have good command over your consciousness. And one thing that I find uh, that meditation does and some of the practices from Sam Harris and perhaps uh, some you know Alan Watts stuff that that you're looking into, uh, one of the things it does is is teach you, what the nature of your consciousness is in, in a very practical sense so that when you have an emotion rise up, you're less likely to act on it immediately and are more likely to notice it so that you can then, with your prefrontal cortex, decide whether or not you want to act in a certain way or not. And I think that's a superpower and I think it's super it's super valuable and there's nothing irrational about it. There's nothing mystical about it. You don't need to to bring in a bunch of weird philosophy. It's just the fact of how humans are constructed and the, and the nature of our consciousness. And I don't think it's something that Rand was particularly interested in exploring. And I, my suspicion is that she would reject this kind of discussion as outright hippie to be mysticism. And then she smoked a cigarette, but that's okay. Or pop so, some pills. Yes, exactly right. Now, now, but the point of mentioning that is to say, if you like Candace Owens at all, that Russell Brand interview is up on YouTube. And it really is a different, it's a different look at her because, you know what I'm saying? She's not on, when, when you're on Fox, on Hannity, let's say, you need to be on guard that at every moment you're presenting yourself as a conservative. Does that make sense? And yeah, she wasn't trying to do that. She was just talking to him. And it's a different side of Candace Owens that I think people might like. Now, 521-1320 and 202 area code. Who's the first person we have online, Command Central? Brave. Our friend Brave from Atlanta. Brave, thanks for waiting. What is on your mind, sir? How's it going, guys? Uh, my pleasure to wait. Um, well, first, let me just say Candace Owens is hot trash, but I, I do uh, enjoy being angry at her all the time. And that was a great interview with Russell Brand. He, he is doing the work. Um, I, I wanted to comment on your... You, you, but, 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 but let me just interrupt you. So I, you've seen that interview with Candace Owens. Do you agree that it's a different take? It's a, That's a Candace Owens I haven't seen often. Do you agree? Yeah, but I, yeah, I attribute that one to she probably was kind of feeling Russell Brand. I mean, it's Russell Brand, right? And then uh, second of all, um, I mean, Russell, Russell Brand is a really good interview, and it's, a, it's more of a relaxed uh, um, environment, right? And of course, yet again, it's Russell Brand. Uh, Candace Owens doesn't really strike me as a legitimate conservative because obviously because of her grifter uh, grifter past. I think she's come into what we would consider conservative or was considered conservatism um, as her grift has progressed. 
right? But if you remember in the beginning, um, at her, her initial beginning as an online um, personality, uh, when she was not successful, she was a, she was a Democrat. She was a Trump hater, and not, not that I favor Trump or hate Trump, I don't really care. But um, that's that was her position, you know what I'm saying? And then she kind of grew. She kind of saw the grift. She saw the money on the on the right side for a black woman willing to be conservative and carry that water. And so she she made that jump, and um, she's progressed. I will give her credit for that because she has progressed. Because in the beginning. Her grip was clear, like <laughs> she was completely clear. And now I think she's um, probably uh, educated herself a little bit better, and um, fat, and uh, she fits into that uh, that that mold a lot better now. Well, I think she's got enough money and fame where she feels like she can say what her actual opinions are more. I know when she first came out, she was with Dennis Prager. She was taking a straight pro-Israel line, which is a pro-war line. And and she wouldn't derivate from that. But as she become more popular and more successful, I she's like Tucker Carlson in that sense. Tucker Carlson doesn't come out and say some of the things I wish he would, but he clearly says a lot of things. He's coloring outside the lines. Does it make sense, Brave? Oh, it totally makes sense. I mean, Tucker, I would. Um, I understand the analogy. I still would hesitate to put her anywhere near um, uh, Tucker. I may not. I don't have to agree with everything that Tucker says, but I do believe, as far as uh, Fox News conservatives go, Tucker is doing the work. I wish we could get rid of the whole conservative, liberal, left-right classification because I believe it's just uh, a means of capturing people's minds and perspectives to keep them playing the, the tug-of-war baseball, I'm sorry, not baseball, but football game where it has to be this or that when it really doesn't have to be, uh, which is um, why I enjoyed your, uh, last segment, your, your last segment so much because uh, my time abroad, I've heard that, so, that, that perspective so much and it's so weird that, not even weird, it's crazy and frustrating and depressing is, to some extent that here in the U.S. we we view ourselves as one thing, like like how we're saying how how um, Biden and them are saying that you know Russia is has been ostracized and the whole world is against them. I mean, to me, that's ridiculous, and it just shows um, how ridiculous we are to believe that. Like the the Western world is not the whole world, and the Western world is not even the full Western world, right? But um, get, get into my point. I don't want to get into a big ramble. Um, it, it, his perspective was, I mean, first it was really upbeat, right? But, <laughs> but um, I, I wanted to get you and Carter's opinion on his perspective, if, if you have time, because in my opinion, what he was talking about was uh, capitalism and the effects of capitalism. And before you go crazy on me, I don't, I don't particularly hate capitalism. I don't particularly love capitalism. I, I'm an American. I live in America, and you got to make money to pay your bills. So that's about the extent of it for me, right? I don't feel that we actually have capitalism in the sense that um, that conservatives and Republicans pray to it. And I know that we're never going to have socialism in the way that, like, say, a Bernie would want us to. We don't have either of those uh, systems. But what we do have is the uh, effects of the actual capitalism that we have. And I know that you would want to. I always make sense. I, I know that. Most conservatives like to describe capitalism as, you know, well, it's not that. Like yesterday, um, uh, your guests were saying, oh, it's not that. It's the free market, blah, blah, blah. That's not what we have. So what we have right. is capitalism. Like, it may not be the definition, but it is the system by which we, in which we operate. So for all intents and purposes, that's— Brave, great, brave, great call. Thanks for calling. Let, let's go to Carter. One thing we've been talking about the past couple of days is— and I think I 100% know where Carter's going to come down to this. 
when you see crony capitalism, you view the problem as the crony, not the capitalism, right, Carter? Yeah, I don't even like the phrase crony capitalism because it's uh, it's you know I <laughs> I'd rather call it crony socialism or crony fascism or crony oligarchy. It's not there's no crony capitalism is kind of a contradiction in terms because in capitalism no one's in charge. You can have cronyism if you've got someone in charge, but in 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 capitalism there actually shouldn't be people in charge. So you can't really have you know I guess crony capitalism would be a free market in which uh, the players got together as cartels and did things and had there was cronyism that way. Uh, but that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing, uh, you know, cronyism between government and private, so-called private business. Now let's go back to the phones. 202-521-1320. Tarif, I'm going to ask you to keep it short because we had David on too. I want to get to him before the end of the hour, half hour. So Tarif, what's on your mind? I'm going to go through these comments right quick, fast. Um, Friendland was um, warned that if they join NATO, the gas will be cut by tomorrow. It depends on uh, Russian gas. All the natural gas comes from Russia in 100% of the oil. Also, um, the U- the, uh, Russia is demanding a, a session tomorrow to talk about new evidence to have a bio uh, at the uh, about the bio lab. Material stuff like that is going to be um, at tomorrow at 10 a.m. Um, 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 Eastern time at the UN tomorrow. They're going to be discussing new topics. And my last comment is dealing with the. Um, they had a story come out of Russia saying that some children was going to be kidnapped and sent to um, Europe, and it was, the August was going to be taken out for organ transplants. And the Russian um, military stopped it. A doctor I had told. The Russian military was going on. It's a news report um, that was appeared on the uh, Russian television. And um, looking at it right now, they're discussing it right now. So that seemed like a big story. And also a Polish pipeline going through Germany was cut by um, Gazprom, by the Russian government. So that's full comments. And, and, and Trey, great call, as usual. And sorry we had to rush here a little bit. But that story about the biolabs, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs on the channel is specifically tying that into Democrats and saying the biolabs may have something to do with Democrat fundraising through the Clinton Foundation and through Biden and Pfizer. So I'm going to point that out, just leave a little bookmark on it and talk about it. As time goes on, I've not had a chance to look at the documents they posted. But note that there's something about the biolabs, the Democrat Party, and Pfizer. And keep that in the back of your head. David, let's go to you on phone calls. 202-521-3020. What's on your mind, David? I know there's a lack of time, so I'll try to make it quick. This may have to be a discussion for another time. But uh, the, the issue is uh, the, what I think this issue of uh, instinctively what is human, uh, you sort of brought it up a little bit, uh, is the psycho- psychologically what we're, we're sort of uh, aimed at. Uh, the, I want to bring up the issue of the universality of racism. You have racism in Africa, blacks against blacks, or ethnic groups against ethnic groups. You have, in the Middle East, you have it. In, in, in almost, almost everywhere in the world, you have it. Now, there are certain countries, 
say the United States and Western Europe and perhaps Russia that are at least uh, explicitly anti-racist in their, their philosophy or their stated philosophy. But the racism is still there. And the question is, will it ever go away? I think that's an awesome comment, man. Yeah, go ahead, Carr. Right. Well, I mean, I, look, humans as such are, I mean, I think we evolved to be tribal and uh, are, I'm not saying this is a, a rational thing, but I think our instincts are often to other people that are not part of our tribe. It's to, it's to recognize similarities that are distinguishable uh, as outsiders and to have preference for in-group. In-group preference is built in biologically. And um, I think the ideals of, of the Enlightenment, which I support you know, individualism, and obviously I'm against racism, they are to some – at some level, they, they are in conflict with some of our biological tendencies. And I think that's a tension that um, is going to be very difficult to navigate over time. I think it's a great insight the caller had. Right. No, no, no. I appreciate the call. And I agree with you, Carter. So when we come back, we're trying to get Yakov online right now. So I want to say when we come back, we'll have Yakov, but that's not assured. But we'll be talking about the issues of Zionism and epistemology in theory with Yakov Shapiro and with our guest co host today, Carter Laren from Unsafe Space. This is the backstory. And we are back on the backstory on 105.5 FM, AM 1390, in Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. We're joined by guest co-host, Carter Laren. And it's always great to talk to you, Carter. And a lot of people have been it's talking about... It's always great to talk to you. And, and, do you know, another author who's come up a lot lately in the news is George Orwell. You notice that the Ministry <laughs> of Truth that whole discussion about Nina Jackwich, Ministry of Truth. And Orwell had a lot of valuable stuff to say. Of course, his most famous book is 1984. But I also think Animal Farm was a very perceptive book. Almost a fairy tale about the dangers of communism and authoritarianism and what, what happens under authoritarianism. But Orwell spoke frequently about the power of language in political discourse. And I think now we live in an age where everyone has noticed accusations of racism or anti-Semitism are constant play explicitly by political parties and politicians and pundits in the media. And what do you think about the increasing accusations? And I'll say accusations because I think while more people than ever are accused of being racist and anti-Semites in political discourse, I think actual racism is at an all-time low. 
Would you agree with that? There's a dichotomy there, Carter, I think. We're hearing racism yeah. thrown around a lot. But in fact, most people I know, the people I know, they would hate someone who's an actual racist, right? They wouldn't want to hang out with them. Yes, although I think this is part of the reason, you know, they, they're running out of enemies, so they need to expand the definition of racism. And this is why they've introduced this concept of um, kind of low-key unconscious racism. And so um, they, they're now trying to say, well, you're, you're racist even if you don't explicitly know or think or behave in any racist ways. You have unconscious bias that makes you racist. And in fact, um, the, the narrative is that uh, – I know this is going to sound racist, but this is the narrative – because it is racist. The, the narrative is white people are inherently racist and born ways racist. So it's it's um they've actually flipped racism on its head and anti-racism uh as it's currently defined is racism. Um and you know, one thing that Orwell really understood well was that language words are uh words are labels for concepts. And if you can control language, you can control thought. And that's the purpose of this. It's not just to control language for the sake of language. It's to change the way that you think about things. Um, and so, you know, th this is an attempt, you know, the ministry of truth was not about controlling what you wrote down or said it was controlling how you think. And, uh, and I think that's the war that we're seeing. That's why they're changing different dictionary definitions so that kids that are growing up will only see the new definition and they won't actually have a concept for this idea of prejudice based on race. Cause that's not a thing anymore. There we go. Now online and joining us is my friend Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro. And when I first saw his work, it had a profound impact on me and I've gotten to know Yaakov someone over the years and I'm proud to call him a friend. And He's the host of a podcast, Committing High Reason. And Yakov, welcome to the show. And meet Carter Laren, our today guest co-host. Carter, Yakov, Yakov, Carter. Hi, hey, Carl. How are you? Pleasure to meet you, sir. Pleasure to be back. How's the sound quality? Do I sound good? Yeah, it's good. It's good, Yakov. It sounds great. So, Yakov, so I thought we'd start real basic. Because I've noticed in my discussions with people, a lot of people, particularly on the right, don't have a good definition of Zionism. They think Zionism means like you don't hate Israel. They consider themselves Zionists because what they know is they don't want Israel to be blown up by terrorists. How would you – what is the definition of Zionism? Zionism is an ideology that says – well, Zionism is an ideology that says, number one, the Jews are a nationality. Number two, that in order for the Jews to flourish, they need to change their personality from traditional Jews. Number three, uh, currently Zionism, the dominant form of Zionism, says the best way to change the Jews' personality, to give them a good life, is for them to have a state, and for that the state of Israel is the state of all the Jews. Number five, a definition of a Jew is closely tied to the state of Israel, such that Israel gets to define what is a Jew. 
Israel is the state of all Jews. Jews are to Israel. This is a quote from Netanyahu. It's a quote from uh, Danny Ayalone. It's a quote from Avigdor Lieberman on Israel's own website. This is their core ideology. What France is to the French and Japan is to the Japanese, Israel is to the Jews. That's the bottom line Zionism. Without Zionism, French is to the France, French, France is to the French, what Japan is to the Japanese, what Israel is to the Israelis. France is to the French, what Japan is to the Japanese, what Israel is to the Jews. Israel is the only country in the world whose nationalism says that Israel, the country, does not represent its citizens. Only it represents Jews. There is no such thing as an Israeli nationality in Israeli law. It is an Israeli citizen, but there is only a Jewish nationality. Jews are a nationality. They got this from the anti-Semitic Russians. It was their idea. Uh, it originated with Heinrich Gretz, but that's what Israel uh, believes. And not only that, but just like a, a Japanese national is a Japanese, an Israeli national is not an Israeli, it's a Jew. This means two things. Thing number one, if I'm not Jewish living in Israel, Israel is not my nation state. It is the nation state of the Jews, not of the Israelis. They wrote this into law in 2017, that although non-Jews have civil rights in Israel, they do not have national self-determination rights. Only Jews do. Thing number two, which is more relevant to me, that if you are a Jew living outside of Israel, like me, I don't plan on living in Israel. I never did. I never lived in Israel. I have nothing to do with that country. Israel is my state. Not the United States of America. Israel is my state. Therefore, Jonathan Pollard said that Jews consider strongly spying on the United States for the sake of Israel because Jews must have dual loyalty. This is why Netanyahu comes to America when he wanted to kill Barack Obama's Iran deal, and he said in front of Congress he represents not only the citizens of Israel, but all the Jews all over the world. This is Israel. This is why the Knesset votes on who is a Jew. They decide the definition of a Jew. So Israel is a, a Zionism is an ideology that defines Israel's, Israel's nationalism and Jewish identity in a way that it has never been defined before. How's that? No, no, great, a great explanation. And I think one of the most significant thing, you started with number one, I believe, it redefines what a Jew is, and it means it's no longer a religion, but it's a race. And that definition is bizarre. For, for instance, Carter, I, I think... You're not a Christian, are you? No, no. Uh, right, and Carter, but were you, were you at one point when you were a child, did you go to church, a Christian church? Yes, I was a Christian until my early 20s. Now, right, what if I said to you, okay, Carter, you're now a secular Christian because the definition of Christian is ethnicity. So I, essentially I did yeah. was... I, I took away the definition and made it something else. And then if I extrapolate stuff from there, Yakov, what has been the effect practically of redefining Judaism as a ethnicity, Jews and ethnicity? And some people say, some guy said to me today, well, why can't it be both? So why can't it be both, Yakov? Okay, so first, 
every religion has their rules, right? And Christianity has a rule that if you're not baptized uh, or if you don't believe in Jesus, let's say, so that, that means you're not a Christian, you're, you're some other religion. In Judaism, the rule is this. The, it's the obligation, the obligation to fulfill certain God's commandments and rituals that make you a Jew. Judaism is a universal religion, meaning, according to Judaism, if you believe in Judaism, everybody in the world is obligated to fulfill certain godly commandments. The Noahide laws, they're called. There are seven of them, and there are some offshoots. Other people are obligated to fulfill 613, and many, many thousands of offshoots. Those that are obligated to fulfill the 613 are Jews. Those that are not so obligated to fulfill the 613 are not Jews. It's the obligation. You can call being a Jew a job description according to the religion. But the only consistent, logical, self-consistent definition of Jew is this. Somebody who the religion of Judaism, who the Torah, says is obligated to fulfill 613 commandments as opposed to seven. That's a Jew. A Jew is a job description. Now... In order, the reason why a Jew can't be anything else is that in order to define something, what you are in search of is a characteristic or a set of characteristics that all the members of the set that you're defining share. Anybody that, ha any member of the set that has that characteristic is defined, and any member that doesn't is outside of the set. So tell me, anybody, tell me, what is the characteristic that all Jews share? that makes them Jews, that if they don't share that characteristic, they're not Jews. Give me anything. There is nothing. It doesn't make any, there is nothing. Uh, there are converts. Ivanka Trump is Jewish. She has no Jewish lineage. Um, uh, according to Jewish law, if your mother is Jewish, you're Jewish. If your father is Jewish, but your mother is not, then you're not Jewish. What kind of ethnicity, race, or anything follows specific laws? We even have laws regarding if a woman converts while pregnant, is the baby that's born afterwards considered a converted Jew or a born Jew? The definition of a Jew throughout thousands of years has been so precise, and it's been uh, governed by religious law. It's been governed not by the normal ways that ethnicities are defined, not by the normal ways races are defined, not by the normal ways nationalities are defined. It's been governed by one thing religious law. That's it. Without the religion, there is no such thing as a Jew. If there would be no such, if there, if there would be no Judaism, there would be no Jews. It's that simple. I defy anybody to give me any idea, any, any characteristic that would be able to contain all the people in the world that have that characteristic by defining them as Jews and exclude those that don't have those, that characteristic or those characteristics. There is nothing else. People say it's complicated. It's not complicated. There are Jews of all ethnicities. There are Jews of all races. There are Jews of all, everything. Let me ask you this. A, a, a Jew, there are atheists who claim to be Jews, right? Okay, but if a Jew is an ethnicity and an atheist can be a Jew, why can't a Christian be a Jew? Why can't I say I'm a Jew by a, an ethnic Jew, but I'm practicing Christianity? Or I'm ethnic, ethnically Jew and I'm practicing Islam. Actually, the Zionists wanted that. Israel Zangville wanted that. When the Zionists were creating this new definition of Jew, they had these inconsistencies. And Israel Zangville, one of the founding fathers of Zionism, said when we create a state, 
So the uh, Holy Sepulcher will be guarded by Jews that are Christians, and the Omar Mosque will be guarded by Jews that are Muslims. But nobody does that. Now, here's the inconsistency. If a Jew could be an atheist, why can't a Jew be a Christian? Now, they are Jews for Jesus, but they believe that Judaism says that Jesus is the Messiah. There is nobody out there that says, I'm Jewish, but I'm a Muslim. And this question was given to Ben-Gurion. When Ben-Gurion, because the Israeli Knesset reserves for itself the right to define who a Jew is. According to Israeli law, you know, the law of return that all Jews are entitled to citizenship. The way they define Jew is somebody who converted to Judaism or who was born from a Jewish mother and has not changed religions. Meaning, according to Israeli law, this is their Supreme Court ruling. If you are born Jewish but are an atheist, you are entitled to come to Israel, become a citizen under the law of return. But if you were born Jewish and you became a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu, you are not considered Jewish and you're not entitled to the law of return. That doesn't make any sense. And then Gurion was told it doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense. However, they, the, the purpose of Zionism to begin with was in order to change the Jewish personality. And this is the effect, and in order to change the Jewish personality into what the Zionists want, which you would call today, paint for yourself a picture of a, uh, an Israeli, right? And a guy like Ariel Sharon, and put next to him a guy like me, one of these Hasidic guys in Williamsburg. They had different personalities, different values, different everything, different souls. The Zionists wanted to change those Hasidic guys and all the Jews in the world to somebody like Ariel Sharon. The way to do it is believe you're an ethnicity, believe you, want to, believe you have a nation, believe you have a nation state. Suddenly, your aspirations change. My aspirations, Lee, are to study the Torah, to be a righteous person, to have a relationship with God. You know, the flesh is weak. We all fall. We try. That's, that's life's struggle. Zionists wanted Jews to uh, aspire to have uh, strong militaries, win gold medals, uh, be the startup nation, be strong, let everybody be jealous of you, let everybody admire you for the things that they value. Uh, be more of a Cossack than a Cossack. You know, be more of a strong man than a strong man. And they figured that if they do that, if they succeed in changing the personality of the Jews, anti-Semitism would go away. Theodore Herzl, in his book, The Jewish State, his magnum opus, I guess you could call that, in its climax, the last page, he says, as soon as Zionism gets off the ground, anti-Semitism will disappear off the earth. So Zionism, besides an assault on Judaism and Jewish identity, is also the biggest failure. Because shortly after uh, Herzl uh, wrote that, Nazi Germany came into existence. Herzl died uh, in 1904. The first Zionist Congress was 1897. And uh, shortly afterwards, Germany became Nazi. And that's what the goal of Zionism was, to change what the Jews want, because they, were, they didn't want to be regular Jews. They, they, they were victims of anti-Semitism. There were pogroms in Russia in the late 1800s. And they, these were assimilated Jews. They weren't religious Jews. They... They said, we don't want to be religious Jews. We want to be regular Russians. But the Russian non-Jews wouldn't let them. So they were kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And uh, they didn't want to be Jews. And the 
Gentiles didn't let them be Gentiles. So their solution was, let's change the Jews. Their, their message to the world was, if you don't want to let us play in your backyard, we'll make our own backyard. We'll make our own state. We'll make our own nationality. We'll make our own language. We'll get our own army. We'll get our own people. And you'll see before you know it, you'll be jealous of us. That was the goal of Zionism. And that was the effect many, on many people. Now, Carter Laren, was I right? Did you enjoy listening to Yakov Shapiro commit high reason there? Did you enjoy that, Carter? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely, I did. Yeah. Um, I mean, it sounds like you're talking about – so something I hadn't thought about prior to, to you is this idea that Zionism is actually in opposition to Judaism and that it's really a usurpation of the religion. It's it's almost like a conceptual deconstruction of Judaism and – uh and that's kind of a fascinating concept that I don't think most people think of uh, one as in opposition to the other. No, this, uh, it's, I call it identity theft against the Jewish people. It's identity theft. Yeah. They're the real Jew. Uh, Yair Lapid's father, his name was Tommy Lapid. He was a very, uh, he was a big opponent. I would call him an anti-Semite easily. Um, that, uh, because that Russian guy is right. The worst anti-Semites are Jews. Karl Marx, for example, was a big anti-Semite. And uh, guys like Theodore Herzl, they hated the traditional Jews, that's for sure. And um, uh, Tommy Lapid said that if Moses and Maimonides were around today, they would say that he's the real Jew, not the ultra-Orthodox. So the Zionists want to be the real Jew. It's a indoctrination, brainwashing, a re-engineering of Jewish identity. Um, and yes, it's opposed to Judaism. Look, these, Benjamin Netanyahu, for example, is not an observant Jew. Her, uh, David Ben-Gurion said he doesn't believe in the God of the Bible. Herzl celebrated Christmas. I, I saw, I saw you, you on your timeline, you talked about a rabbi who passed away recently at age, I think 93 or 94. I'm not going to get his last name right. But Rabbi Haim, what was his last name? Anievsky. Right. You described him as a vehement anti-Zionist. But it, his, when they had his procession for the funeral, 500,000 people, or maybe as many as 800,000. So this is not anti, – being an anti-Zionist Jew is not a fringe belief. It's just not reported on the media doesn't acknowledge the existence. Is that right, no, Rabbi? media doesn't acknowledge its existence because the media is under a lot of pressure. And also, Orthodox Jews, I don't know, the last 20, 30 years, uh, because partly, largely because of Zionists, uh, people don't really care much about us or what we're doing. They care more, they care more about the Zionists than about Israel, and they... They're interested in controlling the narrative. And frankly, the second half of this equation is that we are not interested in controlling a narrative. We just want to mind our own business and be left alone to study our texts and to live our religious life. You know, that's all we want. And now we, in this world out there, outside of our, outside of our study halls, we walk outside and people are saying, well, why don't you celebrate Israeli Independence Day? And we're like, what? That's some country in the Middle East. What does it have to do with me? What do you mean? It's your state. Well, but I'm American. 
oh, no, Israel's your state. What? So our reaction is just, you know, leave us alone. Just leave us alone. But the Zionists run all over the world, all over the social media, all over the mainstream media, uh, telling people we're the Jews, we represent the Jews. If you don't like us, you're anti-Semites. And it's a problem. It's a problem for you guys who are not Jewish because uh, you don't want to be called anti-Semites, yet you will be if you you oppose anything that Zionism stands for. And it's a problem for us because we get blamed for what Israel does. I don't want to be associated with Israel. I don't want credit for what they do. They want to take credit for for inventing ways and Krav Maga. Let them Go ahead. No problem. Let them do it. I don't care. I don't want credit for what they do. I don't want blame for what they do. I have nothing to do with them any more than I have to do with Japan or Kashmir. You know, so that's the problem. We, I go out. There was a kid, a, a teenager in Brooklyn who was punched in the face by uh, somebody screaming uh, free Palestine uh, this week. He has nothing to do with Israel. What do they want from him? What do they want from him? So it's a problem for you guys, a problem for us guys. And the only solution is to tell people loud and clear that Israel doesn't represent the Jews. You know what? If they want to be the real Jews, I don't care. Let them be the real Jews. I'll be, I'll call myself, I'll call myself a Yid, a Yiddish word for, for Jew. You want that word? I'll give you the copyright on it. I don't care. Leave us alone. Sever your connection with us. We have nothing to do with you. We don't want to get punched out in the street because people blame us for your actions. Leave us alone. Make, make us a deal. Make us a deal. We, we won't use your name. You won't use our name. Let's go to a copyright, copyright lawyer. Let's work this out. But we are not you. That's all we want. Uh, Carter, in the last couple months with Yakov, anything, any questions or anything you want to say? Carter Laren. Well, one thing that I'd, I've, I've heard you talk about before, which I also find uh, fascinating because I hadn't thought of it this way before is there's no, in Judaism, it, there's no, uh, requirement that a state exists for Judaism. And, and this is the kind of thing that I think a lot of secular people assumed, oh, well, the, the Jewish people wanted and needed, and maybe even there was a biblical imperative for a state. And that's how Israel arose. And that's uh, my understanding is that's just not true. Of course, not only is it not true, it's prohibited to have one. But because we're in exile now, but that's a long story and it's religious doctrine. It's the Zionists that invented that, and they, they got it from the evangelicals, by the way. The evangelicals were Zionists uh, for centuries before Theodore Herzl was even born, late 1500s, early 1600s. Um, and then there were the religious Zionists that pandered to the secular Zionists and decided to um, remake the Jewish religion in the uh, Zionist form, and those are mostly what we call today the settlers. Yes, me, I have nothing to do with them. They, they're called Orthodox. And yes, David Duke wrote an article about me uh, after uh, a YouTube video of mine went viral, and he said, well, he's an Orthodox Jew. Just look at the settlers. They're Zionists. I have nothing to do with them. They're practicing a different religion, the religion of Zionism. It's not my religion. Don't blame me for them. David Duke's an anti-Semite. If David Duke wants people to think that Jews are Zionists, we should, we, we, it's pretty obvious that it's good for the Jewish people to tell the world that they're not. And David Duke also explicitly believes that Judaism, that Jew is an ethnic definition. He, he does not agree with you at all that it's a religious definition. He thinks it's an ethnic definition. What do you think of that, Yaakov? Does that surprise you? 
No, I think that David Duke defines and um, attributes to Judaism the worst possible things in order for him to uh, better be able to uh, oppose it and, uh, and degrade it. And it just goes to show if people like David Duke and other anti-Semites uh, insist that Jews are a race or an ethnicity, then you've got to be sure that that increases anti-Semitism. And we're, we're, we're out of time, Yakov. It's against a hard break. Fascinating conversation, Yakov. Always enjoy talking to you. That's Yakov Shapiro. Where can people find you? People enter his name on YouTube. You'll find a bunch of videos there. And look for his podcast, Committing High Reason. Carl Aaron, thanks. Great job as the guest host. And thanks to Jeff Halper joining us from Israel. It's a special edition today. You learned a lot on the backstory. Mm-hmm.